You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. Hey guys, this is Kevin Kane with Boston Strongcast. I think this is actually episode 70. It is. All right, that, that's a lot. And there's Emo Danielle yelling in the background. What? Uh, <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> so, today I have Alyssa, so our producer. Hi, everyone. Um, what many people don't know about Alyssa is she is getting her PhD in educational leadership from UMass Lowell. And a funny little... Well, basically what she's learning about has a lot of carryover into training. So it's very similar to some of the um, systems-driven behavior that I discuss on the blog and on the podcast and stuff. So we're going to kind of let her talk about some of her theories that she's learning about in school for learning because actually like learning a skill strength is a skill um, a lot of it really applies and like for me I know I look at a lot of research that's actually geared not towards strength and conditioning but um, education in general pain science in general and you know some skill development stuff Uh, but I'm gonna let (coughs) Alyssa start things off kind of giving like a background of the uh, learning theory that she's going to talk about and stuff. We'll just have a conversation from there. So, uh, go ahead, Alyssa. Yeah. So, I think one thing that is really interesting is I was funny as Kevin was making the transition into learning more about dynamic systems and uh, self-driven behavior within training. I got the syllabus for this class that I'm taking this semester, Theories of Learning, and I brought up the the weekly reading schedule just so I could read off some of the the topic titles that we are going to be talking about. And in order, the titles were Behaviorism, Social Cognitive Theory, Encoding and Storage, Cognitive Learning, Constructivism, Motivation, and Self-Regulation, which if you've been reading any of Kevin's blogs or listening to the podcast recently, you'll know that that's basically what he's been taking and applying to training. Um, So I thought it was really interesting that I was going to be going through this class kind of at the same time and coming at the research from a different approach. Um, But as I've been going through the semester and learning, and obviously, you know, Kevin said I'm a student. I'm definitely not a uh, learning psychology expert. I hope that my professor never listens to this episode because I will probably apply things wrong. But I think one of the really interesting things is the somewhat disconnect between the educational atmosphere and the the strength sport world. I do think there is some carryover, especially as we get into the more academic subjects, I would say definitely, um, you know, physical therapy and some of the exercise science programs that are in the educational sphere, um, specifically like master's and doctoral level programs. They tend to dip in a little bit more to learning theories and how those can apply to motor learning. But for the most part, um, those theories are really not being applied. We're A lot of strength sport, just from what I've noticed, most people just tend to go into kind of like what Kevin's been saying, go into learning about strength from an absolute perspective and not necessarily from a theoretical perspective and thinking about how, you know, we can utilize theories from other domains and apply them to strength sport. We're really going in with this mindset of, you know, the squat is the squat, the bench is the bench, the deadlift is the deadlift, um, and there's no um, learning or personal development that goes into that sort of thing. 
Yes. I'm going to interject. I want you to interject. Really, really quick with that. So I think, and I think this is what happens in the sports world, and I think this actually happens in other fields too, is we latch on to the things that we can measure. Mm-hmm. Right? So like with the strength sports, it's easy to measure volumes and intensities and number of lifts and, and all of these things. It, it becomes very easy to hold on to that, use that data, and let that data make decisions. But a good theory leaves the door open for new phenomena that come in to allow you to adjust and make those changes as, not as science catches up, but as we kind of learn more about our environment and our our world and the human body in particular. And I think, you know, what a lot of people, I think fail to understand with science is it's science isn't there discovering new things. Um, Typically, especially since like we started adding computers into research, everything tends to be computationally driven. So science is not done nowadays like it used to. And because of that, like philosophy doesn't have as big of a part. And in order for a theory to actually be effective, there has to be wonder and there has to be questions. So really good research should answer one question extremely well and open the door for other questions in future research. Um, And I think, uh, I don't know much outside of the specific um, studies that I've tried to get my hands on, like within like a a learning background or pain science or something like that. Um, But I know strength and conditioning doesn't, that doesn't tend to be the case. Like most of the studies just tend to be focused on stuff we can measure. Like for like, I feel like I thought about like the, the study we read a long time ago about the SSB, like measuring one specific lift and its use in one specific area and not say, and then setting it as an absolute for this thing will affect you always in every part of your life. And I think in like where you're talking about theories too, so something like that, that safety squat bar study, it's extremely reductionist in its, in its viewpoint, right? It's looking at the human body as a bag of muscles. You do this exercise, uh, you hook up some EMG and we get some readings and like these are the muscles involved and stuff. The problem is, is like, so if you're a coach or a clinician or even a teacher, right? Because you have students, you have to look at the effect size. So in a study like that, there were like 13 powerlifters, but how many of them are rel- relative to me? So even if you take a large cohort sometimes and you have over 100 participants, like out of those 100, how many of them are relevant to my population? You might have one or two, so the effect size tends to be extremely small within this like reductionist view of science. And this is why I latch on to that theoretical viewpoint is because it, it asks questions, it answers questions, but it also gives a framework. So it understands that there are things that we do not know because it leaves that door open and it gives a framework for us to, whether you're a teacher, a coach, a clinician, to set things up in a, in a manner and answer those, not answer those questions, but guide the process in a manner that applies by that theory, but allows you to not understand um, some things. So there was a specific theory that we were talking about before this actually kicked on and I'm gonna let Alyssa, um, kind of just cover the nitty-gritty details of it and, and we'll have a conversation because the beauty of these theoretical frameworks is within the same so dynamic systems there's a ton of branch off theories um, so like I've had some good conversations with um, like Mike Amato and some of my other colleagues who might latch on to slightly different um, frameworks within the same theories and it, it turns into be some like really like thought-provoking conversation. Yeah, I agree. Um, there's definitely a lot of research that's done about, for instance, in education, there's hundreds of different theories and you could write the same 
paper the same research study and look at it from a totally different theoretical perspective and get completely different results because you're looking for different things within the same subject matter. Um, but we're going to talk about self-efficacy a little bit. Um, so for whoever doesn't understand um, theoretical principles of learning, um, one of the biggest uh, psychologist from the educational psychology realm is Albert Bandura. So he started doing his research in the 60s and 70s, and he has been a professor since then. Um, he's still doing research, so he's well into his 80s, still doing research on self-efficacy and social cognitive theory. Um, and he actually, we did a funny thing in one of my classes where we were looking at his website and he does still respond to people's emails. So if you have questions about his research, his Gmail address is listed on his website. Um, and he actually takes the time to respond to every single question because he's so invested in these subjects. He's been doing this research for over 40 years. I've actually heard the same for a lot of professors. Yeah. Um, so I know a lot of research is hard to get your hands on, um, but there's like openly accepted pirating websites that nobody cares about, <laughs> um, like Sci-Hub that allows you to actually download the stuff without having to pay the journal. Yeah. And in any experience I've ever had or ever heard of anybody reaching out to professors at universities to discuss their research, they will give you a copy of that research and yep. answer your questions because that's what they want. They want that information to get out there. Mm -hmm. That's the whole reason that they're studying the subjects. I think it's funny because you know, the other, one of the other ways that you can find research studies if you're interested is Google Scholar. A lot of times Google will find the links to the free PDFs. So if you type, if you know what a specific study that you're interested in, it will, you can write in the subject or the, the title of the study and it will link it directly to, for instance, yesterday I was trying to find a specific study in the library and I couldn't get to it through my three schools that I work for. Couldn't get through it to any of the, into any of their systems. But I went on Google Scholar, and uh, Penn State had like a free copy on their website, so I was able to find it through Google Scholar. I actually think that there's a um, in the works for a lot of the universities that have good access to start collaborating and putting everything out mm -hmm. there. And I also think so. In a lot of cases, um, researchers don't give up their data. But my understanding is there's this creation of a larger database where they will start inputting their data so you don't have to just rely on an unreliable p-value to try to give you the um, mm -hmm. determination of whether something is statistically significant. Yeah, definitely. So back to self-efficacy, sorry for the research tangent, but I do think it is important to understand the context of um, how both strength and learning play into academia and the understanding that a lot of this information is out there if you're interested because I think many people tend to shy away from theoretical perspectives because they're not sure where to find the information or they're not sure how to go about reading about it but the information is out there so um, I'll put some, maybe some show notes uh, some links in the show notes to some of these uh, formative studies from Bandura but basically Bandura was really the the founding father of social cognitive theory and self-efficacy so the his technical Technical definition of self-efficacy is the beliefs in one's capacity to organize and execute the courses of action required to produce given attainments. So I'll be totally honest, when I started reading this self-efficacy research and social cognitive theory, I can't even think about it in an education perspective. I think because, um, as many of you know, like we're so 
entrenched in the strength sport world that I immediately just think of powerlifting. I don't even, I go to class and I don't have any examples about, because I'm also not a teacher, so a lot of my classmates are teachers or principals in a, a, a stereotypical K-12 classroom, whereas I am an administrator in higher education, so I don't necessarily have a classroom. Um, I do supervise uh, graduate assistants, but I don't have formal students, if you will. Um, so then my mind just immediately shifts to powerlifting and I have no examples in class except um, about powerlifting and how self-efficacy applies. But um, the basic premise um, of self-efficacy is that you are able to set a course of action for your goals and attain them in a reliable manner. Um, so there is some uh, empirical evidence on self-efficacy. you have those internal tools. To do so, yes. Um, but I think what's really interesting about self-efficacy is the power of your own efficacy judgments. So um, those are related mostly to learning performance and motivation, which are three different areas that I feel like in powerlifting, we don't always think about them as three different areas. We just think about, you know, the training, right? We're going in and we're training and then we go on the platform and we produce these things, but it really is a series of small, not goals, but almost just different ways to get to the same thing, if that makes sense. Um, so Kevin, I wanna hear your thoughts as to how you feel that how different levels of self-efficacy impact training. So, to me, right, so this is why I've changed the model of how we do things, is I actually will argue that self-efficacy is the most important aspect of training. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that teachers would argue that as well in the classroom, those that understand self-efficacy principles, is that in learning in general, self-efficacy is the determining factor on if a student will succeed or not. And I think the reason for that um, tends to be like simple outlier ones like buy-in, right? So if a lifter or a student has a greater buy-in, so if they take part in the actual educational process or the programming or the, the lifting part of it, and it becomes this, the teacher or the coach, they're these co-captains along, along, you do get greater buy-in, but I think it goes beyond that, and I think some of it goes beyond our understanding. So I'm just gonna use a simple example. So this is why I, I do not let any of my lifters use a foam roller, is if you remember when Alyssa gave the definition of self-efficacy, she was discussing about having the internal tools to handle whatever issue we're gonna talk about. Uh, she used a term within learning, but I think if you replace learning with pain, you're gonna have a, a similar, um, the definition should be the exact same. Yeah. So if somebody feels that they don't, that they can't squat without that external device being used on them, like we're losing that self-efficacy battle before we even start. So like right there, that's like an easy one to start building that um, that self-efficacy. But when in, in terms of training, so on top of buy-in, it goes way deeper than that. So there's a there's a hierarchy of how of these feedback loops and how they work within the, the human body. So your emotions, your cognitions, your perceptions, all of that play a role in your physiological strength. Not, not play a role, they are part of your physiological strength. Um, so if Alyssa believes that no gear squats <laughs> are gonna increase her total, like that's a conversation we should have and as a coach, 
I need to find a way to put that put that in there in those situations for that, but in, in a manner in which the general principles are still being applied, however they're being applied for that specific um, I- individual. So if she perceives that to help her and she does it and gets better and like, she's like, oh man, I know if I put my gear on, I'm gonna be able to squat more. Like those things have a lot of value. Um, I'm, I'm trying to keep it really simplistic, so this is, this is, uh, it's right in the manner that you're gonna understand what I'm talking about, but it's also not quite that simple. Um, there's there's layers to it, and we literally have perceptual inference upon perceptual inference. And I'm just gonna give a, a quick example so you understand what I'm talking about, and I think this is a really good one. So if we're standing in a, in a backyard somewhere and there's a picket fence, and we see a cat walk behind the picket fence, our initial layer of perceptual inference is gonna tell us that that's cat slices put perfectly on the other side of the fence because we actually can't see that cat. But our second layer uh, is basically gonna be like, yo, you don't know what you're talking about. That makes zero fucking sense. That's a cat walking behind a fence. And then you're gonna take that hypothesis because it, yep. it's, it's right for the world in which you live in. And you're gonna choose that and you're gonna be like, oh, there's a cat walking. Uh, behind the fence. Now, let's say we go to prove our hypothesis correct or incorrect, we walk back there and it's a raccoon, right? So we get startled and we jump back. The next time that we encounter that same experience, a couple of things could happen. That hypothesis could be updated with, I need to be aware because that may be a raccoon back there, (laughs) or it's definitely gonna be a cat, you go back there, it's the same raccoon, you get scared again, and it just may take multiple occasions for that to actually sink in so you can see here on an individual scale learning happens at different rates and there's so many things that um tie into that if you want to cover some of of well because we i mean we've talked a lot about i think one thing that might be confusing for people is we've been talking a lot about self-regulated training and self-regulated um movements in training periods um, which is doing things that you need to do in order to be successful versus self-efficacy which is the belief that you have the ability to do those things Um, because you can be confident without having the ability to do something you can have self-efficacy without actually being good at something Um, which is why people who typically display higher levels of self-efficacy and training often become better at movements quickly because they have the belief that they are going to get better at those movements versus someone with low levels of self-efficacy, um, whether in you know in a training environment or in the classroom. If you believe that you're bad at math and you keep trying and you keep trying, but you still don't believe that you're good at math or you believe that you're bad at no gear squats and you keep trying and you keep trying and you don't get better, Part of that is because you don't have the belief in yourself that you're going to get better. So that impacts the level of buy-in like Kevin was just talking about. Let's talk about that part of the of the theory of learning. Mm-hmm. So explain why you, you would say that that happens. Like why my lack of belief in my math skills leads to me not, not being good at math. So... Um, I'm referring to an article um, by Roger Goddard. Um, It's called Collective Efficacy Beliefs. Um, And he kind of describes efficacy constructs as a future-oriented judgment, which I think plays a big role in your self-efficacy. Because... What does he mean by future-oriented judgment? He means that um, 
your judgment now impacts how you will perform and how you will basically learn whatever is at hand. So um, trying to, your self-efficacy judgments are based on how you're going to perform in the future. So you believe that, um, because obviously like when you're learning something, you're going through it simultaneously as you're learning it, but you're also not doing everything at once. Um, Like learning, as we have said many times, is a process. It's not just you learned how to do a high bar squat today and you have become a master. Rather, it takes time, it takes modeling to overcome both um, lack of skill and lack of efficacy. Um, Like no gear squats. Can you stop coming back to my, I just did no, for those of you who are not here, I just did no gear squats and I'm really bad at them and have, I have very low self-efficacy about no gear squats. I would say that that is definitely something that is inhibiting me to get better at that concept. Um, But yeah, it takes time. It takes guidance. It takes skill level increase to get to that period of mastery. Um, But I think what really what Cotter and what Bandora are saying about um, future oriented judgments on self-efficacy is that self-efficacy is a like a self-reflection on how you're going to do in the future. And then you're basing your learning skill off of that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm going to piggyback on that one a little bit. So uh, the framework that I use for training, it's actually called Friston's um, predictive processing. So basically what happens is is our perceptual inference. So this is our top-down approach. Um, So our brain comes up with this hypothesis. And we choose the hypothesis that we predict will have the lowest amount of error. It's how we actually see the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so some examples, so if you guys, I'm not gonna go over all of the, um, the research here, but if you just Google rubber hand illusion, you can get a ton of research on how this stuff works. So basically they'll put a rubber hand within your eyesight close to your regular hand. And they'll put your other hand out of view, tap your other hand, and you'll start feeling stuff on your other hand based off of what you're seeing. Because, you know, this error minimization framework, what you're seeing, even though you can know for sure that that's not true, you just can't overpower that perceptual inference. Mm -hmm. It's just like some of these are um, cognitive and impenetrability. It's a hard word to say. say (laughs) Um, So basically what happens is your brain comes up with this hypothesis that it predicts will have the lowest amount of error. And then it it goes to the world, and this is the bottom-up part. So our senses kind of give this information back. Um, And what we're trying to do is we're trying to prove our hypothesis correct. So just Mm -hmm. like how... Uh, research is going to show confirmation bias. In this case, your brain has confirmation bias for how it perceives the world. And one thing you gotta keep in mind is our brain is locked in the, in the skull. It absolutely cannot see the world. It just perceives it. So everything that you see, I literally mess around with my 11 year old with this stuff, but like what you see is just a, a hallucination of your perception of what you think the world is. So we have this predicted hypothesis with the lowest amount of predicted error. We go out into the real world and we get this feedback. So in Alyssa's math case, um, we believe, we choose the hypothesis that we are bad at math because we believe this will have the lowest amount of error. We go out there, we perform poorly. Now that bottom up, that perception comes back in and now we get what's called binding. Your top down and bottom up now bind into so this is when it starts getting like layers deep and to break this binding requires, like Alyssa was saying, a lot of, a lot of guidance 
along the way and changing beliefs. And it's not so much of just consciously being aware of this stuff. There's a ton of subconscious stuff. So you can't just tell yourself, oh, I'm good at math. There's got to be things that create when you choose that hypothesis that when you're getting that perceptual feedback back, there's got to be things in there that challenge that hypothesis and force you to come up with a new one. Um, so maybe it's just starting with really easy math problems that over time you start gaining a little bit of confidence. For me, this is where the variations within the lifts come in. Mm -hmm. So um, let's, you know, somebody's pitching forward in the squad, there's pin squats, high bar, wide stance, like whatever it may be, I'm creating that feedback to change that hypothesis. But what we got to be careful with, I'm just going to say this right off the bat because this makes a lot of logical sense and we can get into a lot of trouble with this, is it's easy to just take this framework and be like, oh, I just got to change the hypothesis by creating this sensory feedback. That's not how it works. No. It goes layers deep. Like literally how I look at it is I'm giving an input with an expected output. I measure objective data to make sure I'm getting that, that output. Um, from the educational background, from the math part, Alyssa, maybe you can go into a little bit more detail on like... Um, that aspect. Yeah, I I think that's a good point because you can't just ultimately all of learning, strength, motor, any type stems from conditioning, right? That's like the the most basic behaviorism theory that we have. Um, and you got to remember, conditioning starts from day one. You're on this earth. Exactly. So that's what I'm saying. So when you're when you're going through training, if you're doing a new activity, if you're doing a new exercise, you already have self-imposed beliefs about how well you are going to perform on that specific task, which impacts how well you will do it the first time, which conditions you to feel how you will do the second time, which is why self-efficacy is not just, you know, oh, I am... I am going to be good at this. I'm going to be, you know, I could say to myself a hundred times before uh, a specific exercise that I don't like. I'm not going, to mention, the, I'm not going to mention the name <laughs> of it. Um, but I could say to myself a hundred times, you know, I'm going to do well on this. But as soon as you break your knees and you start to lower yourself to the ground, th that internal self-efficacy takes over. It is not something that can just be turned off. Um, you can condition it to go in a different direction or use perceptual feedback to change your self-efficacy, but it does take time. It's not just something that happens overnight. I would even argue that that doesn't happen when you start to bend your knees. It happens before. Yeah. Um, so like there's a famous quote and I forget who said it. So maybe the person's not famous. <laughs> But you have to perceive to move and move to perceive. So in the terms of a no-gear squat, like, we'll use Alyssa. Alyssa has this perception of what it's going to be like. Yeah. And we need to challenge that perception, but how often we, how long we need to challenge it for, how we need to challenge it for. And as educators or as coaches or clinicians, this is where our feedback becomes mm -hmm. extremely important. So how I was saying before, like, somebody's beliefs within a program matter, it... It also doesn't mean that their beliefs just run the program. It's, okay, well, these these are their beliefs. How can I use that or how do I need to redirect that? Because we're not really trying to change their beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. We're just trying to redirect kind of how those feedback loops react to training, um, educating. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I think, you know, I used to give a lot more feedback, right? So let's let's take the no gear squats. Alyssa has, lacks confidence, doesn't believe that she has that self-efficacy, that, that capability to be able to handle 
um, heavier weights with those no gear squats. If I sit there and I overcorrect her no gear squats or I say a lot of negative things, that feedback goes with the feedback of the weight feeling heavy on her back, which she said today. Um, so we can reinforce those negative beliefs when we're really not trying to. Um, and, and the same goes in an educational educational setting I would believe yeah one thing that we talk a lot about just obviously because most of us in the room during class are educators is the impact of the instructor or in our case it would be the coach on self-efficacy and I think one of the most interesting things is the exactly what you're just saying that there's not you know there's a need for correction and or feedback but there's not a need for overcorrection and or over feedback especially because you know in education we're seeing more students coming in with a lower self-efficacy especially in subjects that are stereotypically considered more challenging um, and I would say that strength training is considered definitely challenging to some people um, so if you're coming in and you already have the belief that something is going to be challenging having a coach who is overcorrecting or trying to give you feedback constantly may not seem in the moment um, detrimental just because much of our our learning is not often displayed right on the bat like if you give me a cue on my no gear squats if you I don't know if you said Touch the box. That's what I said. I did touch the box the next time, but, um, you know, it's not going to be displayed right then most of the time. You know, it does take several repetitions. It does take more training time or more learning time to be able to adequately display that skill. So I think that's one thing that people kind of go in with the perception of like, oh, like even when we were at the meet last weekend, I was listening to different coaches and even in the warm up room, you could hear them say heels in the ground, head up, chest up as someone was performing like a 30 or a 40 percent lift. And that feedback is just not necessary. Um, There is a need for feedback. Let's not confuse the two. There is a need for feedback. If you have a coach that you send videos to and they give you nothing, they just send you a new week and they say nothing to you, that's not the right method either. But there isn't a need for, um, you know, constant all the time feedback because it's just not going to make the learning process easier for the student. And one thing with the feedback too is, um, there are times that I could say something that could, that could fix it on the spot. But remember how I was saying that there are layers to this. I don't need them to be consciously aware of my words. I need them to understand what I want from them out of the lift, but I need them at the same time to experience that feedback in order to make it stick. Mm -hmm. If there's a high level of conscious awareness within a skill, you're not going to be very good. Um, I've used this uh, analogy a few times in like articles and people laugh at it because I use the same one. But like LeBron James doesn't think about a jump shot when he goes to take a jump shot. There's a point in training where he might do drills to improve his jump shot, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't think about it. Um, If you try to think about it, one, it's a a timing thing. Like you got to remember like everything's happening within milliseconds. Mm -hmm. So if there is this conscious awareness, you're always going to be a step late. Two, for ingrained skill to take precedent, it needs to be subconscious. And one thing I'm going to... So we had a meet... Was it last weekend? Yeah. Feels like a fucking month ago. Um, But we had 17 people compete over the course of the weekend. We had Dave in Florida and then 16 the following day. 
so where when I had constructed the programming and the coaching in a different manner where I gave a little bit more feedback and we used more sub-maximal weights, uh, technique tended to break down on the platform a little bit, which, which was expected. Um, and, and everybody did well. It's not like doing that everybody got terrible results or anything. But this past weekend under heavier weights, you didn't see the same thing. Like you didn't see technique breakdown. If somebody missed a lift, it was because it was too freaking heavy. Um, but they didn't they didn't get pushed around by the weights. Um, and I think a lot of that comes to one, strength is a skill. So having that subconscious um, technique from using all those variations and taking those variations and lifting them fucking heavy every single day, I think helped push that into the subconscious. As opposed to, I haven't touched 90% in a while. I'm really fucking scared. And now I gotta try to keep my back tight, my heels in, whatever those fucking coaches were saying yep. in the warm up room. At that point, you've lost that lift. There's no way you're gonna be able to achieve high level performance um, with that type of with that type of mindset. Um, maybe you could go into more details of why that is, based off of. Um, I think one of the hardest things for me to gauge as a learner in this type of environment is that so much of psychology is still undiscovered. Um, especially because as we talk about self-efficacy, we talk about these selves. If you you guys can't see this, maybe I'll put a picture as the uh, promo photo. You can see all the selves that I have written in this notebook. So um, we went to go into them. Um, self-regulation, which is what we were talking about, doing things we need to do in order to be successful. Self-efficacy, self-reflection, self-renewal, um, which is like the transformation of the self. Self-development, self-explanatory. <laughs> that was funny. Um, self-confidence, self-esteem, um, self-concept, uh, self-guidance, self-instruction, self-motivation, self-interest. So much of this is based on the individual person that it is researchers have been able to develop, you know, theories and constructs around these selves. But the biggest premise of this research is that so much of it is individualized that it is very hard to pinpoint something that is going to apply universally. It's not a subject that is data-driven. It is, even though it is data-driven, it's not data-driven like strength researchers or exercise science researchers would like it to be, which is why I don't think it's well-received and not well-utilized. Um, I actually, with the well-received and well-utilized part, I think, and, and this is just nothing but a complete opinion, but I think it's hard for any of us, especially like, you know, full-time coaches, PhDs, like it's it's hard I think for a lot of people to say I don't know, mm -hmm. to have that framework of embracing that uncertainty, understand that you don't know, what you don't know is greater than what you actually know, and what oh, you yeah. actually know will probably be disproven at some point. Mm -hmm. So, like much of Pandora's work. <laughs> yeah, but like the way that like science works, like even though like theories tend to like move away from other theories there's still these same underlying concepts yeah they build off each other yeah they build off of each other and that's how you get like like our modern science hasn't been around that long and like no. we're gonna look back 30 years from now and people are gonna be like yo you hear that boston strongcast podcast those guys are fucking idiots yeah i mean um, bandora's research only started in the 1970s so and that's really only almost 50 years that's not that long. I mean, we've only been studying these concepts for such a short period of time that there is still so much more to learn. And as more researchers 
get into this and I think that would be an interesting point of future research like you were kind of mentioning in the beginning is how motor learning is impacted by traditional education models because I do think that they're both have a lot to learn from each other I think when you think about it in traditional education like teaching and coaching um, you know coaching traditional middle school and high school sports versus teaching in the classroom Um, Obviously, you do see educators that are both teachers and coaches, and I think that some of those teachers are most effective in the classroom because they're utilizing things that they maybe use on the field or in the court or in the weight room. Um, But then they're also taking things from their educational backgrounds that they've learned in school and applying those to their coaching. Whereas I think there's just an individual coach here that you know, the, the high school coaches who are get on the news for harassing their athletes versus the teachers who might be too nice or too, we were, one of my classmates and I were joking in class because we talked about, um, there's a whole period that we talked about motivation and the need for less feedback in the classroom, especially less positive feedback, um, going over and over saying, great job, awesome, you did so well. And she was just burrowed her head in shame because she's like, I do this to my students all the time. I give them so much positive feedback. Um, But I think this kind of ties into the last thing that I really wanted to talk about. So within Self-efficacy. Um, self-efficacy is really tied to social cognitive theory, which is um, what Bandor is primarily known for, um, and it's what we were talking about earlier. Is that you know efficacy is defined as this future-oriented thing. Um, it's divide, d- defined in three different areas: so the self, which we've talked about, the behavior, which we've talked about, and the environment, which we haven't really talked about. But I think as a PPS case study, I think this is one of the most interesting things to me about social cognitive theory um so i'm interested if you have thoughts on the change in people's self-efficacy through our environment specifically like modeled behavior i think that's something that really ties into environments but yeah so uh we're gonna get into a talk about consciousness and how it works in a in a group setting so how i was talking about predictive processing before it actually works that way in in a group setting too so let let's Our consciousness is private to be social. So if you think about that for a minute, we formulate these hypotheses, these hypotheses, we get this feedback and we're constantly updating them. This works in a large social setting too. So let's say Alyssa's doing her no, her no gear squats. We'll mm-hmm. just stick with that example. And she's like, this sucks. I'm having a hard time with this. And I'm challenging her in ways to try to change her beliefs to keep, you know, like it, it's not always, sometimes like stress inoculation works. Like at some point Alyssa's going to be like, fuck this. I'm just going to squat because I know I'm never going to stop doing these until I stop complaining <laughs> about it. Um, but like Jess Ward, I was having a conversation with this morning and she really likes them because she felt they helped move her squat forward um, later on. So if you expand that to 50 people who are going to have a conversation, we have a large group chat where a lot of them can have these conversations, you can update Alyssa's predictive model just in that group setting alone where all of a sudden now one of the lifters with one of our biggest squats um, is saying, hey, this really helped me. Now you might get that updated um, hypothesis from Alyssa. On top of that, every week the weights 
are going up. It's all of a sudden not feeling so heavy on her back anymore. Mm -hmm. Like she's starting to get used to it. So now you can start updating those those processes and maybe it wouldn't have worked without Jess Ward. But these conversations happen within the gym all the time. And there's a, it's called ecological psychology as well. So like, we always try to like mimic people and stuff too. So like that, what we see and what we experience does help, um, does go into like our, our perception of what movement should look like. So through the conversations I'm having with other lifters and through watching them lift, like somebody might see something that somebody else is doing and is like, oh yeah, okay, I start to get this. However, you gotta be careful because too much visual feedback can actually work against you at the wrong time, it can actually work against you. My words can work work against that sometimes but work forward others. So there's a juggling process with this whole thing. Um, but if you think of it in a larger setting, like you keep your consciousness to yourself so that your bias doesn't affect somebody else's. And then in the group, when you start becoming social with your consciousness, they start to blend together and the group starts to formulate a larger hypothesis. So when you start seeing, um, and we're gonna take this away from like just typical conversations because I think that's too simplistic to get a, a really good idea of how this works. Yeah. But this is where PRs become contagious. So all of a sudden people are lifting heavy, everybody's staying healthy and everybody's hitting continual PRs. All of a sudden now you have this, even though everybody's consciousness is private in that social setting, you're looking at everybody else and you're starting to develop this larger hypothesis amongst the group that this way of training is working much better and they start helping each other in, in different ways and start pushing it forward. Um, and I was actually having this conversation um, with my, my wife yesterday and I've had it with Alyssa and some of the other ones that have been here longer, like the difference in our training environment currently compared to what it used to be. And I, I think the environment is a major driver for our success as a group. Yeah, because I think it also, you know, obviously it plays into a lifter's self-efficacy. If they see other people doing this, then they can start to have the confidence to perform those tasks in a certain function. But it also, I do think it has an impact on vicarious learning and how people can learn from each other just you know we talked you talked a little bit about the people modeling different exercises and if you know if there's too much visual feedback they might do poorly or they might pick up something that is not correct from someone else but or constantly just try new things without ever <laughs> practicing one um, but I think that that's a that's a more of a conversation about the information that people seek out rather than necessarily learning from each other because I think we do a good job here of modeling good practice rather than I was trying to say I was yeah good in quotation marks of like um, you know we're we're doing exercises and a lot of us do similar exercises so I think that modeling specifically you know for high bar pin squats or uh, Zach and Mike were trying to share a bar earlier and Mike was trying to do pin squats and uh, Zach was trying to do low bar wide stand squats and I was like well guys we probably shouldn't do this um, and then they w tried to take it down and they were like oh that's not gonna work out too well so um, you know observation is huge and I do think that because we have a larger group now um, people are able to observe what they assume to be good lifting and try to mimic such behaviors and also mimic attitudes right imitation is a lot of the sport we're all doing the same exact thing so um you know you see something online or you see something in the gym and you try to copy that i'm gonna give a little um a coaching secret right here so everybody in the group who listens will actually laugh when i say this but sometimes i'll do things in a specific manner to create camaraderie 
Um, so, as you might have seen on the internet and like in my stories, everybody got four by twenty goblet squats. Now, first of all, when you're not wearing gear, you're holding a dumbbell, you're doing sets of 20. It's literally the opposite of what we do on a day-to-day basis. And it hurts. <laughs> Everybody's sore the next day, but everybody comes together and they're complaining about 4 by 20 goblet squats. So it helps create that social atmosphere of that camaraderie so that, that this social experiment yeah. ends up working later on. Because um, it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to always be focused on, like, you know getting in smashing a PR week in week out you gotta have fun sometimes and like there's there's this like bonding that happens with like the bullshit misery like I remember playing sports in like our our like preseason basically so like in August we'd have to go up a few weeks early and we literally had three days one was in the pool and it wasn't too bad but like it was just like this bullshit conditioning that everybody fucking hated and that none of us probably really needed but it brings everybody together like this so are you saying our goblet squats are, squats are not really they needed? are 100% that what I used to have to deal with like leading into um, real training but it was just to kind of see if everybody would do it which I knew that they would but on top of that like just kind of bring everybody together in in their misery of stuff and it does impact self-efficacy because you see others doing it and you're like well if they can do that I mean even I I was in a hotel gym so I was using kettlebells and I didn't particularly have (laughs) heavy weights but then I saw other people doing much heavier goblet spots and I was like well shit if they can do that then I've got to do that because I can't be the only one doing 15 pound goblet squats that's just embarrassing and if you're sore two days later from 15 pound goblet squats what is what does that say about you as a lifter so it does impact the way that people are able to lift and able to go like just a little bit further which you don't think that that maybe like 10 or 15 pounds we always joke about like if you're just going to put five pounds on the bar don't put it on because it's not going to make a difference in your training but you'd be surprised that those little increases over time um do impact your total even if you only increase your total two and a half or five kilos three or four times a year you've still put 20 kilos on your total in a year so and like i think that's a good example too with the uh five pounds because i think a lot of coaches will preach five pounds at a time and they want these like little jumps Mm -hmm. but this gets back to the self-efficacy if you know you can go up fucking go up like ha- have the confidence to put that weight on the bar and fucking hit it. Yeah. Um, and in a lot of cases, that that's what you see when it's like, uh, should I go up? Should I put five pounds? Yeah. And like when we say that, all of a sudden, like somebody be like, all right, fuck it, I'm gonna put ten or fifteen pounds. Yeah. It does go into I'm re- I'm just um, reviewing some characteristics that affect observational learning, and one of them is out- outcome expectations. So people are going to model actions that they feel either will have a rewarding outcome like a PR or you know an extra 10 pounds on a set or they're going to model something that they believe is appropriate which I think goes into that you know if they know that they're going to be able to put an extra 10 pounds on they will do that if they don't then their self-efficacy will limit them and they will go back down and the outcome measures too like this is I think this ties into how we perceive how our feelings are going to affect performance when we really don't know so if (laughs) I, I like these are the conversations I probably have most I slept like shit I haven't eaten I feel tired I'm sore like if you start putting those in there and you believe that those things are going to mm-hmm. decrease the outcomes it's literally going to negatively affect training and what you start to see happen is and then that negative day creates another negative day mm-hmm. and you have this like spiraling so like coming in warming up seeing 
what's there that given day, understanding what your best outcome and best decisions to make on that single day, make those decisions, and knowing you made the right decisions, you still got that effort, you know that the outcome was still the best training day that you could have on a given day, Mm -hmm. it helps stop that like negative um, spiraling. Yeah, I think that goes back into what we're talking about, about the self-efficacy of the coach or the teacher impacting that as well, because that is your belief going into having conversations with lifters, right? If you go into a conversation with lifter X versus lifter Y and lifter X has low self-efficacy, maybe they're tired, maybe they're feeling like garbage and you tell them like, oh, like just do whatever, like it's okay, it might affect your training. If you say that to them, right, then that's going to negatively impact their self-efficacy for their training versus someone who might go into training and never let that affect them, but then they have like some type of variable in their training. Um, The way that you have those conversations with lifters impacts the way that their training is going to go also, right? Because you are their the the I don't I don't want to inflate your ego too much but uh, you are what they would call model prestige right so you are the person that they are trying to model their behaviors after they see you or any of the other you know more veteran lifters on the team doing x y or z and they want to do that as well yeah I just had a thought too that just um I I literally just <laughs> I was like oh this leads in nicely to um, the, the next, not the next thing, but I kind of wanted to like piggyback off of that. But, uh, oh, here it is. Um, so how we say things matters, right? Mm-hmm. So I use a lot of variations to um, correct, and, you know, saying that word is inappropriate, but I use a lot of variations to adjust inefficiencies within the lifts. But if I tell somebody that we're putting this variation in to fix your bad technique, Right. So those words carry a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. So depending on what that person's beliefs are, beliefs that like and I was talking about this earlier, like I think American lifting beliefs are you can't lift heavy often. Like this is such a fatiguing sport. Uh, Risk of injury is high when none of this stuff is really true. But if I tell somebody that you need to fix your technique, somebody might be like, oh, I'm at higher risk of injury because bad technique leads to injury Mm -hmm. or I have a problem with my lifts. I'm not very good at my lifts. And it carries weight from you. It carries weight from you as their coach and that coach lifter relationship matters because if your higher level person is telling you that you're bad at something then your self-efficacy will go down you will believe that you are not good and you are not going to complete um like if kevin tells me every day that i can't bench then i'm not going to believe that i can bench it's the same thing in the classroom if a teacher says you know we're going to work on your multiplication tables because you've been doing really poorly at them versus reframing that and saying you know we're going to work on these and you're going to get better at them and here are the steps that we're going to take to complete this uh, level of mastery for you an individual to your specific level of mastery that you needed then the student's self-efficacy levels will at least you know stabilize hopefully or go up yeah and i think and that's different for every person yep. how, how you handle that like um it's also why like you know, we try not to say these things at times, but if somebody's like, I feel like shit, this feels terrible, this, like you have all this self-deprecation that just mm-hmm. ends up happening. But your self to add to the list. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Self-awareness should be added to that list too. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have this, like we always say, sometimes training is hard. That's yeah. it. Like <laughs> this, this feels terrible. Yeah, mm-hmm. sometimes, sometimes it, it does. does. Like it does. fucking deal with it. Like either train or don't. 
and I think you know just having that like and like people joke about it and it does help kind of like break the mood sometimes mm-hmm. um, but everybody does need like different approaches with how you handle them some people respond better to, to being yelled at some don't some sometimes like some people get so in their heads you just need to break that streak and that's where like a little joke could come in or you know there is you're guiding their self-efficacy that's like literally your job as a coach or or a teacher yeah i think this sentence that i have apparently highlighted that is giving me the perfect ending to this show is learners who think they can't reach a goal hold low self-efficacy do not commit to attempting something and work half-heartedly and i think that as coaches i really do have it highlighted i'm not even i'm just making sure you didn't highlight the whole page because if you're one one of those oh we talked about that in class too (laughs) about uh learning strategies and how, just for any students out there, if you highlight all your stuff, you're not really learning. It's one of the lowest levels of uh, learning strategies. Hit me up if you want to learn. <laughs> <laughs> Anything, any final thoughts? No, I mean, I think, you know, I think, one, this doesn't mean that if you're a lifter, like your beliefs should just be taken into consideration and, and that's how the program should look. Like yes. your beliefs yes, I want to hear them and I want to hear your feedback and and how you feel about stuff. But at the same time, as a, as a coach, and this will probably be the same as a teacher, like I need to make sure that you're being directed in a manner that is going to lead to greater outcomes. Um, your beliefs aren't always right. If they were, you would just be better off doing this on your own yeah. and not paying for a coach. Exactly. Same thing with learning. If people knew everything, they wouldn't go to school. I will say, because I'm going to challenge that, mm. I've learned way better since I've been outside of a regular institution. But I think that's because so much of this work is not... Uh, embedded into teacher preparation programs specifically I'm talking specifically K-12 I think when you get to college and as you get into higher levels of training there are certain people but you also have to remember that college professors are not trained on how to teach they're trained on science or they're trained on physics or they're trained on Spanish their field Um, they're not specific to they're not given a, a book on how to teach they're just hired because they are scholars in a specific field and very often at larger institutions professors are hired because um, of their research capabilities and their ability to uh, bring in funding for the institution. It's not a specific like, oh, you're going to be a great teacher for this intro to psychology class. If that was the case, then everybody would be psychology scholars. But um, I think that that definitely is true. But I think as the field becomes more developed and as education becomes more individualized, even at the K-12 level, uh, this research and these theories will have to be embedded into teacher prep programs because it is otherwise students are not going to do well. And I will say, like, outside of an institution, like, I have a graduate degree, but I've learned more since, but that leads into that (laughs) self-efficacy thing. Yeah, and you have better agency. You're able to choose what you want to learn about, and you're able to choose things that are relevant to your field versus in a, you know, a program where you're learning X, Y, and Z to get a degree of A, you know, you have to learn, like, I had to take this class, even though this particular area of research has literally nothing to do with what I want to do with my life. I'm not a psychologist. I've actually never taken a psychology class, um, which is why half of this stuff is really confusing to me, and my professor can obviously um, attest to that. So, um, but yeah, it's not, you know, you're taking certain things to get to a goal of X. Um, They're specific to what you are trying to do. And I think to... 
you know, we had research used to be a lot more like physics used to be that main science of research, which had a lot of philosophy in it. Mm-hmm. And then that quickly changed once technology came into it. Like I was saying before, the computers and, and, and measurement devices and stuff. Now, like biomedical research tends to be where all the money goes to. But at the in, in effectiveness of a lot of that research and the results that we're getting from it, I think you'll start to see a pendulum switch more back more towards like a, phil- a philosophical approach to the sciences and you'll start to see like I'll tell you some of the research that they do with these theories is absolutely fucking brilliant how they um get these results and stuff and it's starting to gain a lot of traction yeah and it's only a matter of time before it picks up more steam and you're going to start to see um I think a lot of changes within the educational realm um lean more towards this theoretical approach. I'm not sure how much it's going to affect powerlifting. Um, it'll it does. change how we do stuff regardless. So yeah. I think it, I think it's fun too. I think it's fun to, I always joke around with Mike Amato, but I'm going to solve the universe through powerlifting. Oh. Yep, that's going to be, fun. that's going to be the last chapter of my book right before I die. <laughs> the origins of the universe. Boom, done. Done. The end. <laughs> Squad a bar. The yeah, end. but... That, that's all that's all I have yeah that's um, all I got so you can sign yourself off oh. you know what you're supposed to do yeah I know what I'm supposed to do so uh, you can find me on Instagram at Alyssa Lifts Things um, if you want to send me an email my email will be in the show notes but it's Alyssa C Fry F-R-E-Y at gmail.com and yeah that's all I got alright follow me KWCAN or don't follow our team <laughs> Precision Powerlifting Systems. Or don't, apparently. (laughs) Or don't. Stay strong, Boston.